Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. Welcome. Welcome into the Housing Hour. My name is Kevin Ray. I am your host. And I'm here with executive producer Mark Griffiths. He is also our co-host. Thank you so much for stopping in. We're excited to be here and have the opportunity to take some time to provide, hopefully, some um, quality information for you and um, hopefully add some value to your day. And we're just uh, thankful, thankful for Mortgage Investors Group for being our sponsor, uh, MIGonline.com. Also, for you guys who want to share this show with friends and family, we'd love for you to go to... Uh, thehousinghour.com. Um, you can find our past shows, our current show. We'd love for you to interact with us there. Um, we'd love for you also to come on to the Facebook, facebook.com slash thehousinghour and Twitter at thehousinghour. Um, stop in and see us, drop us a comment, like our page. We'd love to um, interact with you. And today we have a great guest on the show with us and they are on the phone. We have today the Tennessee state director for the Tennessee national, uh, small business. I'm going to have him explain exactly all of what he does. But uh, Jim Brown is with us, the Tennessee State Director uh, for the National Federation of Independent Business. Thank you so much for joining us, Jim. Yeah, Kevin and Mark, thanks for having me on. NFIB, the National Federation of Independent Business. And Mm -hmm. we have 7,000 members across the state of Tennessee, our our great state, and 325,000 across the country. We've got quite a few members there in in Knox County and, and your listening area. So uh, hello to all of them that are that are members. We can't do what we do up here in Nashville and uh, Washington, D.C., advocating for them unless they're uh, they're members of the organization. But we're a general interest group. We're, we're not a special interest group. We focus on issues that matter most to small businesses, independent businesses. You can't be a member of our organization if you are publicly traded. But if you're a larger business and you're independent, you can be a member. Most of our members are smaller, but we have quite a few that, uh, you know, that have 100, 500, even a few that have uh, several thousand employees. Uh, Pilot Oils is independent. They're a member. So Mm. uh, you don't have to be small, but most are. That's really good to know. Um, Real quick on your background, um, one of the things that you and I both have in common is that we manned a nuclear submarine or ship. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was on the USS Bainbridge, a nuclear cruiser out of uh, CGN 25 out of Norfolk, Virginia. Mm-hmm. was in for four and a half years. I was just talking to a friend about my service this morning. And, yeah, the nukes, uh, they're, they're, different, they're different ducks, but they, mm-hmm. they do a good service. You know, it's interesting that you're doing what you're doing now. You graduated from Vanderbilt um, in communication, so you, that really gave you a, a wide swath of opportunity, I would say. Um, and you have this background in military. You know, most folks that that I talk to, my brother-in-law's uh, in the Army, a colonel, and, and works at the Pentagon and, um, you know, has just a, a, had a great career. Um, everyone has a different sort of transition out of military service. And yours was very much proactive in the business world. Um, you could have went many avenues, but you chose this. And I don't know everything about you, but that's an interesting transition. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So it was a really interesting time. The, my military service, it was a blessing. I needed it. I probably grew up most, you know, as a, as an individual from um, college and being on a campus and, and then getting out and you, you've got 
four divisions and 125 different folks uh, calling you sir and you're 23 years old and you've got all this responsibility and it's very humbling and yeah. uh, you have to um, earn their respect and and really as a as a young officer you, you don't know much and you, you, you but you do know character and you do know uh, what they've taught you on how to run the division and you just rely on your enlisted and um, the the duty service uh, the, the honor that you you take from that it really trans it translates very well into the business world so a lot of a lot of businesses want to hire veterans and and folks that come from a you know a background of discipline and service right and i i think that's so true and if every one of our employees sort of you know projected that same mentality or any employee of any company the the traits and the principles that you learn in the military certainly carry well into the business world um and and you spoke about what your organization you know is and who it represents and this is a national organization correct or, yes sir yeah. we've been around since 1943 we have uh uh, like I said, 325,000 members across the country. In some states, it's pretty large uh, mm-hmm. number of members, Ohio, Florida, some other states. And uh, we're we're really different than most business organizations. We operate like a Greek democracy. We don't mm-hmm. We don't go into a boardroom and decide what the largest donors want us to do. We poll our members frequently at the state and federal level. So, you know, on the gas tax, the Improve Act, the Insure Tennessee, we did some special surveys on that in recent years. We'll put four or five questions on an annual survey and and get the feedback from the members on labor issues, workers' comp, unemployment, health care, tax, uh, environmental issues, uh, workforce issues, things that impact all of our, our members. So we really like the purity of the system that uh, the member that has three employees or is working on her own or his own has the same vote that Pilot Oil has or, or McKee Foods down in Collegedale, Tennessee, which makes Little Debbie snack cakes. They're, <laughs> they're very yeah. involved with our organization, but uh, it's one member, one vote, and we love it. That's great. And I think I heard you say one time you need to make sure – and all businesses need to do this. And, I, you know, whether you're a mortgage investors group or your pilot oil, it's it's engagement. And I think that's what you provide in information as well. And I think that information is powerful and people who have more information tend to maybe they're maybe can't, aren't always going to make the right choices, but at least they're armed with the right information. But you and, and I'm going to allow you to tell me what your sort of mantra is about being on the menu. What, what was it? that you Oh, say? yeah, we, I say that I, I, yeah, I just did uh, cut a little video the other day for our sales guys and and uh, our sales team. And, and we say this a lot when we're presenting to potential members. And when I'm talking to civic groups, rotary clubs, and others, chambers, you're either on the menu or you're at the table. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it so many times where if you didn't have an advocate watching up in D.C. or taking notes in Nashville in the committee rooms and your your business is, is thriving, you're, you really are one bad law or one bad rule from being hurt significantly and it costing you a whole lot more money and heartache and potentially shutting you down. Uh, could tell you dozens of stories in my 13 years as an advocate at the state level of times where we've, we've caught, we read a bill early in the process or even late on the floor where we're like, this doesn't make sense. You're about to put 
90% of this industry out of business. And, uh, you know, when you find those things, it's why, you know, you realize the, you know, the members who are at the table that they're, they're getting their money's worth. And you guys work in partnership with other lobbying groups. And I know that that's important. Like for instance, I mean, I don't know if the coal mining industry was one of your, one of your members or not, but it seems to me that there's businesses that are affected that would fall upon other lobbying groups, but you guys, do you guys work in coordination with them and sort of get on the same page because members coming together are powerful. We do. We, we lock arms a lot. Uh, sometimes we, we have to fuss a little bit and find compromise, and sometimes we have to oppose something from a, a business organization that uh, might be getting a little bit protectionist. But for the, yeah, for the most part, the, the Tennessee Coal Mining, uh, Tennessee Mining Association, they're, uh, the, the folks they contract with, they're a small business. They're actually members of ours and NFIB members and the, spoke to their group of uh, about 100 people last year. Some of those members of their association are NFIB members. So uh, we don't do trade issues so much, guys. Um, we won't go into the mining uh, issue so much or the, you know, would dive deep into a convenience store issue too too much or you know, the alcohol laws. We just don't, that's not really what we do. But if it's going to impact the broad membership, we we tend to really dive deeper. And that's on those areas I talked about, like workers' comp, mm-hmm. labor law, um, unemployment law, tax, uh, environmental law, more more frequently with the home builders. We lock arms with them a lot lately. Um, about uh, 10% of our members are in the home building industry. So we do get involved, but those trade groups do a fantastic job of getting into the weeds in their in their industry. And you monitor in the state legislative um, branch, I think 200 bills that could be um, could be uh, you know detrimental to to your members. We do we- on average, it's about 200 a session. We go in a two year cycle on our sessions. The General Assembly we're in the 109th, I believe now, and so we're on the going into the second half in January. And about you know every year we'll flag about 200 bills that impact the members. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. And those um, place those bills that have just ha- been given a placeholder, or those actual bills that were are potentially going to make it to life. Some of both, a little bit of both. Uh-huh. So some of those bills, the language that you see, and this is a great uh, little tip for folks that that go to the Tennessee General Assembly's website. It's capital.tn.gov. Mm-hmm. They when you look that. When you're looking at that website, some of those bills are placeholder bills, and you've got to watch the amendment go on in committee. Mm. And uh, you can hear that country music playing in the background. Sometimes it happens later. That background country music means that we're going to a break, and we're going to continue with Jim Brown right after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. Again, this is Kevin Ray with Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We want to thank our sponsor, Mortgage Investors Group, MIGonline.com, 1-800-489-8910. Also want to direct you guys to thehousinghour.com. You can find out more about Jim, our guest. Uh, learn more about what it is that uh, his organization does. Uh, the website is is fantastic. 
and it's dedicated to the entire organization. And, and Jim certainly has a piece of that. The largest, I think you said, uh, Mark, largest one in the, in the, country. Oh, the, the, the number one small business growth in, in America. Isn't that right, Jim? It's been crazy good. Yeah. We, we crazy have good. like survey after survey coming in and press release after press release from these different groups that are ranking us very, very well in different categories. The one that came out recently that it's got some Knoxville connection here, the visa visa, the credit card folks, they ranked six Tennessee cities in their top 50 metro areas for job growth. And Knoxville was 28th in the country, and Cleveland was 7, Nashville 8, Morristown 19, wow. Knoxville 28, Johnson City 29, and Clarksville 33. And Paychex had something similar. They, they had us the number one state for job growth among small businesses at 3.7% growth. Mm-hmm. And the average wage rate went up 3.61% over the last year. And that's the third third best gain among the 50 states. So things are cooking in Tennessee. And Jim, along those lines, when you were talking on the before the break, um, talking about policies, I saw in the Times Free Press, there was a quote that you kind of made as referencing Tennessee as being business friendly state in a lot of states. The public po- policies are moving in the right direction, while other states they're not. Um, is that why Tennessee's so successful? Because of your local presence, Illinois is near bankruptcy. They're wow. they're uh, we're seeing stories about them now. I just was talking to a group of business owners yesterday. Kentucky's pension uh, system is about to go broke within the last four years. We balance our budget every year in Tennessee. Uh, we our pension system is is almost fully funded. The uh, the decisions that lawmakers have made, the, the constraints that are in our system, single subject, uh, the the single subject requirement in our constitution, one bill, one vote, not what they're doing in D.C. You get to debate each bill one one at a time. Those are very healthy uh, things that keep the tension between the three branches of state government. Things that are not happening in our federal government and in some states. So that. That recipe has helped Democratic and Republican administrations, you know, by and large, do a pretty good job in managing state affairs. What's going on the last few years has been just an unleashing of of the entrepreneurial spirit. Spirit, and I think Governor Bredesen did a very good job overall uh, with uh, some decisions that they made, and um, I think Governor Haslam and his administration, by and large, has done an excellent job. Mm-hmm. with some of the reforms that uh, have passed, workers' comp, tort, tax, uh, unemployment reforms. Lieutenant Governor Ramsey was huge in that those two two years of major reforms to get the system cleaned up and fraud and abuse worked on. Uh, we're, we're, we're reaping the benefits of very good policy over the last uh, six, seven, eight, ten years. And there's a lot of the unemployment fraud that really sort of shook me when I found out that the definition i guess of misconduct was Mm -hmm. had to be revised and you had people who were on seasonal jobs paying out you know unemployment and i I mean i didn't know that was even an issue let alone one of them still is the seasonal employer provision has been delayed it was passed uh, a few years ago we were told it was going to be put into the new computer system in 2016, we had a hiccup there. It's delayed till 2020. So your canoe rental business, your seasonal business, not part-time workers, but seasonal workers, there's a definition that you're going to need to, to go look at 
to apply for this, but it won't occur till 2020. That'll get rid of a lot of the fraud, the abuse of going to work for two months at a at a hospitality business uh, like Dollywood and then falling for unemployment. Mm. Those things need to go away, and that that will be addressed um, okay. in, in the coming years. The unemployment misconduct definition and some of the other provisions that are already in, in place. Uh, they're, they've been fabulous, and so the pendulum got put back in the middle in these unemployment cases. And if you're you're stealing from your employer, you're going you're not going to get unemployment. And a few cases where we saw something that didn't look right, we called them up, and the the thing went to appeal and it got reversed. So there's just a better administrative process and better definitions in the in the code. I think I liked what you said on one of the interviews. I think I heard you say, and this really is, uh, this was a past issue revolving around the fraud and fighting against that unemployment fraud that occurs. I mean, I think not that it's been settled. There's still things to be worked out, but you made the point, and I, and I think this this is a very important point, that part of the way that you resolve some issues is by increasing the number of audits. Now, on first glance, when I heard you say that, I, I kind of bristled with antagonism, I guess you would say, because more audits, you know, for a, for a company like us, you know, that's that's a difficult thing. We already have enough audits. But talk me through how more audits would be effective in some areas. Yeah, boy, that one's been a little while. Let me dust off. Let me go back <laughs> into my little microchip here. But there was uh, a foul. I think initially there was a thousand audits a week that were required. And I don't think that we were able to get that done. But when they got to a new computer system, they actually took it up to 1,500 or something like that. And so there's just these automatic audits automatic. that are generated. Gotcha. And work search requirements, I think at the federal level, you need to do, to, for federal unemployment benefits, FUTA, F-U-T-A, you need to do two, uh, you need to contact two employers a week after a certain time period in order to keep your benefits. At the state level, we decided to go with three. So if you're, um, if you're calling in and saying that you're, you're looking for employment, you're, you're listing these, these phone numbers that don't exist or you're not even doing it, you're going to lose your benefits. You need mm-hmm. to, to proactively look to go back to work. And so I think that my has definitely really helped. Um, bring in a lot of monies that were paid out that shouldn't have been. And I think I was more, and that's good. I'm glad that's more of an automatic thing. I'm thinking of a team of, of accountants that are audit specialists coming in and taking over your compliance department for a week. That's not mm-hmm. what you're referring to. So I think I just misunderstood what you were saying because it, it sounded as though, <clears throat> just like I said on, on the first impression, so that makes more sense. And those are the type of things that you guys stand for and you really got in the weeds on that and you made recommendations and you lobbied um, our legislators and, and you helped to prevail and help create what is now uh, maybe the stage that has been set for a great growth and seeing us come in number one and number four, or number five, and, and then having five in the top 50 of, of growth in different areas that that's phenomenal. I mean, that, that is something to be proud of. And if you're a small business owner or one of the people that are in your organization, um, I mean, obviously you guys aren't the only people to thank for that, but you are a huge, huge piece of it. Would you not agree? Well, I appreciate that. I would say it's very collaborative, and so that unemployment issue that you teed up, for instance, we had some feedback from members. I remember a member from Maryville 
Merville, that's how you say it, uh, calling and saying that this this fraudulent case occurred and these things add up and you bring them to legislators and you go out with the lieutenant governor across the state like we did to the visit with 500 business leaders across the state and you keep getting these stories. And so that's a basis to start with legislation. And then the lieutenant governor's office, to his credit, Lieutenant Governor Ramsey, his staff actually researched this very well, and they found some very good reforms that had passed in Florida and some other states, South Carolina, and uh, brought those ideas to our attention. And we said, oh, yeah, those look good, too. Talked to our members, and they liked them. So it was a very collaborative approach, and um, that's how I think workers' comp was done. We wanted workers' comp reform done probably seven, eight years ago, and Governor Haslam said, slow down. I want my people to understand this fully. And they brought us a bill that wasn't perfect, but uh, it was very good and addressed a lot of the concerns. And through some compromise, it got through. And uh, that that's how it's working in Tennessee. It's not working that way real well in D.C., but uh, mm-hmm. we, we were very blessed with the leadership and the structure of government here. That's great. Well, I definitely think you have your arms around this pretty well, and, and you sound like you definitely have a good working knowledge of how things work in Nashville, and and, and maybe, unfortunately, you have a working knowledge of what happens in D.C., too. Um, you know, you, you sound like you might, you know, I don't know if you have political aspirations, but if nothing else, you could certainly be the chief of staff someday <laughs> yeah. for Governor Haslam, who oh, will be president. Uh, no, I prefer this seat, and, and guys, maybe I'll come on another time. I'm actually writing a book mm, about yeah. contrasting the state and federal processes and it's oh, part wow. political and it's part spiritual and hmm. um, part wow, perfect. Um, right up our what's alley. going on in our schools and, you know, our, our penchant to serve and, and, you know, how that helps center us. And I, it's a book that I hope to finish later that I think I'll, I will be able to finish it later this year and really kind of dive into that particular topic a little more, but I'd have to take my NFIB hat to do that with you on that one. <laughs> right. Well, you'll definitely be on our show with that. We'd love to promote that for you and help you talk through that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to continue in a moment. We have two more sure. segments. We're going to talk with Jim about some more information with Tennessee small business, independent-owned businesses. This is exciting information. We'll be right back after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour again. Kevin Ray, Mark Griffith, executive producer and co-host by my side. Adam is in there uh, turning the tables for us. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, MIGonline.com, Mortgage Investors Group. Uh, Check them out today. 1-800-489-8910. Helping the American dream come true for over 27 years. That is our sponsor. Um, Thehousinghour.com is our website. We have Jim Brown with us today, um, not the Cleveland Brown running back <laughs> and not the James Brown uh, singer, of course. He's his own person. <laughs> um, do you get mixed up? Do people, people talk to you and say, hey, you know, I thought you were the Jim Brown, the other Jim Brown? You know, after a beer, I'll do a little James Brown impression, but right now we'll, we'll stick to stick to the script. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, I wanted to talk to you in this segment and, and tee up some other information that I think that um, 
somebody who I, and you may have dis- may disagree, you may agree, but somebody who I saw as a great Tennessee business advocate was, and still is, Bob Corker. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Senator Corker is an mm-hmm. entrepreneur, came from a, a construction background, and mm-hmm. and uh, he's, he's made... Uh, uh, he's just a, really represented himself well first, and uh, I, personally, I can tell you, uh, I had a, a tragedy in my my life. You know, we all have to go through suffering at some point in our lives, and I remember I was on leave from work, and I uh, got a call from Washington D.C. and and he called, and he he talked about you know what I was going through, and just told me he was thinking of me, and mm-hmm. said he was sorry. And uh, you know, you get those calls from time to time from the leaders, and we we just have this this vision of of the way things are on TV and in the media and on Facebook and elsewhere about how um, impersonal it seems, but it really isn't. And uh, he's he's just done a, a really good job of of being our senator and um you know being a good decent man no i like that and i i just remember when he first came into office and i i remember the campaign with harold ford jr and i remember all the the stuff that was said and when he came into office obviously he did a great thing he did great things in chattanooga and his vision you know became a reality for a lot of what he wanted to do but the reason i brought him up is is not specifically about him but about tennessee being that you know knoxville chattanooga You've got, of course, the corridor, um, the the technology corridor to Oak Ridge. Um, you have a lot of East Tennessee um, growth potential. I mean, Middle Tennessee. I mean, this is unbelievable. Hundred new people per day, I think, is what it said. Just overtook mm-hmm. Memphis. Um, so there's so much opportunity, and you have the corporate tax rate. So I, I want to make it sort of a two part question. So you have Tennessee, no income tax, no state income tax. You have a great opportunity. But then when you try to go and you try to, to, to get new business to come in, or maybe you try to prevent somebody from going overseas or, or you try to prevent them from going, you know, down to Mexico. Um, how is it that we can overcome this obstacle, which is a big one of our high corporate tax rate? And, and do you think that will change? That's an awesome question. And we're heading in the right direction. I think we have more work to do. But Tennessee has, I think it's 21st or 22nd in the country, where we rank as far as corporate taxes. We're uh, we're surrounded by eight states, and we're the highest among those um, eight contiguous states. We are heading in the right direction. There, the way this franchise and excise tax, which is the second largest tax in our tax base, sales and use is the first. But you combine sales and use and the F and E franchise and excise corporate tax. It's about 75% of our tax base. It's very important to our state, but it's also been uh, a problem in attracting new business and also keeping existing businesses here when they want to expand. So some of the reforms in recent years have been designed to give more flexibility in the structure and not have to be as onerous in how the the tax is calculated and the, the level of the taxation. So what does that mean? There's three factors that you have in this. It's property, payroll, um, and and sales. And one of the reforms that just was in this Improve Act, the Gas Tax Act, for some of the manufacturers is it allows them to opt into the single sales factor. And those that have this heavy payroll and heavy property uh, component 
can can lower their burden and expand here, more jobs here, and some companies that have gone elsewhere will come here now. So that's a good step in the right direction for some of the larger businesses. There are still opportunities to look at that F&E tax and very cumbersome to file and see if we can clean it up a little bit and make it a little bit more fair to all businesses. Because there's a lot of businesses that you look at from just a national or even I guess you would say regional and depending upon what business that they're in. And, and I love that there's reforms on the table and, and you're positive and it's going to, you know, get better. And that's a great, great message. And I hope that that's the case. I believe you very, very much. Um, but then you start looking at some of the deductions that are allowed to be taken. And, and maybe this isn't affect Tennessee business as much, but I like maybe for you to put your national hat on. You know, you look at some of these um, corporations that, they basically don't pay any corporate taxes, I, you know, I, and I don't know the specifics, but Exxon Mobil, you know, they, they basically, by the time that they put in all their deductions, their effective tax rates like nothing, you know, right. I, I don't so, know. Yeah. So yeah, go well, just uh, an addendum on the state. We will likely poll our members in the fall on F&E further franchise and excise tax reform on the national level. It is a huge issue. Healthcare. And taxation and, and the regulatory issues, the overburdening there, those are the top three. Mm-hmm. And the taxation reform for our members at the national level is to make sure that that everyone is paying their fair share. You hear mm-hmm. that from, from all sides of the political spectrum. Sure. But that uh, the, these larger businesses... They're they're paying a much lower rate than some of our smaller businesses that file in the individual level, LLCs and, and others, and they're paying... 35, 39% on their, on their uh, tax rate, and some of the larger businesses aren't, and it's unfair. And so let's get it to where we put it in the middle, everyone's paying the same rate, get rid of some of these deductions. What the Republicans have in Washington right now are some very good ideas to, to simplify the tax code and also make it fair to small business. It's a huge issue. And, yeah, I think it was, was it Paul Songus, not Paul Songus, who had the flat tax idea? That Ross was Perot? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, you, you had very different versions of it, but uh, um, Steve Forbes, Steve talked Forbes, about Forbes. It, uh, Huckabee's different versions of it, fair tax, flat tax. So I'm not sure which one. Yeah, well, and uh, the reason I brought it up is because I don't know that a one size fits all is really the answer. But you know, you have a like you mentioned, you have a lot of ideas. Um, and, you know, uh, President Trump has a lot of ideas and, and he has put forth a budget and obviously that's going to be debated and, and that's going to be run through all of the branches of government as we see. And um, and so those are all the different aspects of this. But um, I think most people would say that this administration is business friendly and, and that's definitely I think that's a unanimous. Yes, they're business friendly. Would you agree with that? So far, on the regulatory side, they've done a great job. They have addressed a lot of the overreach that occurred in the previous administration and don't want to disparage you know, the, the political part of this, the policy part of this, the impact on small business with uh, the overreach from the EPA and OSHA, the, the National Labor Relations Board, some other agencies, HHS, with some of their interpretations of Obamacare. Were, were very harmful to small business and their employees and thus their customers who were paying uh, more for products and services. So this had a trickle-down effect, uh, some of the regulatory uh, overreach. And so they they seem to be doing a, a very good job of reining in some of that, cleaning up what they can through the different powers that they do have. More needs to be done, Dodd-Frank 
is big. Mm. The, the House that passed to a, us. a cleanup of that for those small community banks that impacts all of small business and, and all these communities, rural areas. There's a lot more to be done, but, you know, we'll, get, we'll give them good marks so far on the regulatory side. The health care and the tax issues, we, we, we need some results. Yeah. And we're pushing for them. And I, that's actually what I'm reserving the last segment to talk about is health care and how it affects Tennesseans because the the scoring that was done by the bipartisan Senate office, I can't even, CPO or whatever it is. CBO, CBO Budget Office. Yes, they scored it. And, and you know, for, from a business friendliness standpoint, I'm assuming that losing that many people's health care coverage would be a positive thing, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I'd like to get your take on it because there. I, I think that when I look at the Senate and the dissenters, let's set it up this way. You look at Rand Paul, and that's one of the most vocal people that I hear that that doesn't like the version that that the Senate's trying to pass. And and I want to know from your perspective, when we get back from the break, mm-hmm. how does the Senate bill as it stands in the House bill? We'll talk about that, too. But the Senate bill, how does that affect Tennesseans? And, and, and what I mean specifically is the companies who are paying insurance for their employers or for their employees um, and the exchange, I mean, we're down to what one or two exchange. I mean, it's, it's just going crazy. Whoa. James Brown, right on the mic. Perfect timing. Is. We're going to continue talking with beer. Jim Brown, <laughs> with Jim Brown, right after these messages. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray, your host, with Mark Griffith, executive producer and co-host. This is the Housing Hour. You can find us at thehousinghour.com, um, at the Housing Hour on Twitter, and facebook.com slash thehousinghour. We're talking with Jim Brown. It's been a great uh, discussion so far, and definitely appreciate you coming in, Jim. And Jim is the uh, state director for the National Federation of Independent Business. Um, Tennessee is uh, right now doing so well, uh, leading the the country really in a lot of a variety of different metrics as it relates to small and independent owned businesses. Um, and I would definitely want to give his organization a nod for being a, a collaborative partner in, in what has been going on. Um, and we were talking before break, and we have one, this last segment left, so we only have a few minutes. But I'd like to get your take. So. For people who maybe aren't following along, the House passed a bill that was now sent to the Senate. The Senate basically didn't, you know, none of what the House passed, I I mean, some of it might be, but they are not going to pass that bill. They're passing their own bill, which will then have to go back to the House. Can you walk through the legislative process and then sure. and then how so does that the affect House's us? The House bill and the Senate bill, there's some similarities, but there's some differences. The main differences are that uh, the subsidies in the Senate bill are a little bit more generous. They go out a little longer. 
the um, pre-existing conditions, I believe there's a 30% penalty if you if you were to get out of your insurance and then go back in. There'd be a 30% penalty for for that, just so um, people aren't hopping in and hopping out. That was a big part of the discussion of Medicaid reform in Tennessee a few years ago with Insure Tennessee. So, there there if the Senate bill passes, it'll it'll go to conference and we'll have to work it out and and see what they can get done in both chambers, but. Um, right now, the, the the big the macro level discussion is we have a healthcare system that's badly broken. Everybody knows it. We have on the Medicaid side, it's a it's a broken system. Uh, you, it was a safety net for the poor, and and uh, now it's we've got able-bodied adults in there, and which is what Obamacare has done. And I think what the House and Senate versions are trying to do is to is to get people back to a system where there's there's a bit more personal responsibility, a little bit more skin in the game. That was the discussion we had with Insure Tennessee a few years ago, which was some small co-pays, some money for, you know, for um, uh, emergency room visits, that type of thing. So there's people just trying to control their health care a little bit more instead of it being something that's just this blank check, which is driving costs to the roof. So uh, I think... <laughs> What do we think? We we're supportive of both bills, NFIB is. Um, there is probably a start uh, as opposed to what real health care reform would look like, which is more tension in the system, more uh, personal shopping for services, those types of things that, that bring costs down significantly. Uh, but politically, this is what they're offering. Uh, Jim, let me ask you, as far as these health plans and the exchange program, what are you hearing from the other small businesses in regards to that? Because I know that some of them might not be offering health to their employees, but expect their employees to be able to go to the exchange and pick up a plan. What are you hearing? It's been a nightmare for small business. I mean, not to to be um, too bold with words, but in, in three states, premiums have tripled since the Obamacare uh, taxes and everything was implemented. So uh, it's uh, Arizona, I think, or Alaska, and, and, and I'm forgetting the three, but there's a tripling. And in other states, most of them have doubled. In Tennessee, I talked to small business owners where their, their premiums have gone up and their deductibles, everything. In the last two years, 98 percent. I talked to someone the other oh day that's in here in Nashville and Green Hills that uh, uh, that uh, you know no catastrophic illnesses, injuries, anything, and their rates went through the roof. So very difficult to deal with. Um, I think it's I think it's probably the number one problem. When you look back in our survey, we do every four years the uh, small business problems and priorities. Thirty straight years, number one mm. um, issue for them. Well. I, that's what I want to get to the root understanding of because, Jim, I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but if you just look at the numbers, and, and this is the, the numbers that I had pulled earlier today, and, and these may not be exactly right, but, you know, it's, it is what it is. But back, back in 1960, healthcare cost was $27 billion, which was 5% of GDP. But now, like in 2015, which is when this was conducted this, this survey or study, um, it was $3.2 trillion, which is 17% of our GDP. So everything else, all the, everybody else is rising. Inflation is, is, is sort of across the board. But why is it, and I know this is a big, huge question, why is it that the inflation um, points in healthcare are so much higher than anywhere else? It does not make sense why... I mean, if you examine a hospital bill, it is outrageous 
what they are charging for certain services. A popsicle is like, you know, a hundred dollars or something ridiculous like that. I mean, you've heard these horror stories. Can, can, is that not the root cause of it? They're overcharging for the services. None of us seem to want to ask how much something costs. We just think it's either free or it's taken care of when it's not. And so that's insurance really is an insurance when it comes to healthcare. But you have to have it for the catastrophic illnesses have gotten so expensive that, you know, everyone knows that they're mm-hmm. in order to avoid bankruptcy, you better have it. So, right. you know, it's it's we've accepted the system and the, the system is broken. It's not insurance. Uh, we have other types of insurance that you, you assess the risk, you, you say, this is how much I want covered for my car insurance, for my home, and that's a very different process. With, with health insurance, it's a completely different process. And the more that government has gotten involved in every aspect of healthcare, not just this, what we're talking about, but uh, how they wanted to control how diabetes test strips were, were going to be um, uh, controlled, uh, that sent costs through the roof. There was fraud and abuse in there before, but the more the government gets involved in these places, the more these costs go through the roof. And it's, it doesn't even marry with the inflation rate in other areas of our economy. And in Tennesseans, I guess the the thing that they need to know is that these are decided on a federal level. These are not decided within the legislative branch. But the things that are decided on the legislative, the Tennessee legislative branch, for instance, um, Jim Haslam really made a bold move when he didn't accept the Medicaid funds. Or is it the medic? Yeah, yeah. the expansion, the expansion, Mm -hmm. which, you know, could have been political disaster, depending on where you look at how you look at things. But how do you see that unfolding? Because that's a big mess in itself. Most of it's federally driven, but we do have mandates at the state level that we have 40-some-odd, 43, 44, third highest, I believe, in the southeast. So we have these other coverages that have to go into plans, the small and individual group, um, uh, small group and individual plans that our members buy from the different insurance uh, folks. So, um, But as far as um, um, Insure Tennessee and what Governor Haslam did and all that, that was uh, step back to 2005. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. And Medicaid was 33% of our state budget's pie. Governor Bredesen made a very difficult decision to move people off the rolls. So it was an awful, awful situation. And where health care was 25% of the pie. We have organically grown back to that 33%. That's how broken Medicaid is. Mm. And people can't get in to see doctors in a timely fashion. There, it takes a long time for, for many folks to get paid. Um, it's not working. And, you know, there are fewer people in the system serving a growing population. It's unsustainable. So uh, what we did in Tennessee is says Medicaid's broken. Let's get the authority to, to manage it ourselves with block grants or whatever the feds are going to decide here and see if we can bring in costs so it doesn't crowd out other funding that we other appropriations and, and spending that we need to to maintain in other parts of our economy which you know education and, and other places and and you know it's the number one number one issue on the table when it when you look at the budget it's the largest I don't know what it compares to defense. I mean, it's not even close. It is the largest expenditure for any um, government agency or any government uh, budget that I've ever looked at. It's far and above the the most expensive. 
We talk about the $20 trillion in debt, and that's real, but we don't talk about the open-ended entitlement programs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the Senate bill tries to make it not open-ended anymore and keep the growth with regular inflation, and that's causing advocates to really be upset, and we are seeing that in the media. Yeah. But um, the unfunded mandates, the unsustainable Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid systems, and Medicaid is just it's broken. Yeah. Uh, that is, we've heard estimates of $70, $80 trillion, uh, that it, that are going to bust our bank at some point. Mm-hmm. So it's it's... Even so, larger yeah. than we're talking about, yeah. it's it's not budgeted the same way the rest of the federal budget is. Well, I I, I approve of your message, if you will, and I I would definitely um, believe that you have our best interest in mind. And we're coming to the end of the show. It's amazing how fast this goes by. So um, this is the time when I thank you for coming on, Jim. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, appreciate both you guys, Mark and, Ke- and uh, Kevin. I really appreciate being on with you. NFIB.com and backslash TN if you want the Tennessee page. And you can find that at thehousinghour.com right now. Click on it, go there, and we're going to get you more information on Jim. And we will see you next time right here on The Housing Hour. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. Also, check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.